Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. If we focus on building meaningful relationships versus transactional relationships, that's actually where the real magic happens. The fascinating thing I feel where neuroscience, psychology, and, and other areas are saying exactly the same. It's really to your point, right? This idea that the question of luck, bad luck, good luck, and everything else, a lot of times depends on when we stop the story. And if we stop the story too early, then it ends up to be bad luck. Thank you so much for joining me on episode two of Reframe and Reset Your Career. I really do appreciate your support. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Christian Bush as my guest today. Christian directs the CGA Global Economy Program at New York University, NYU, and teaches on purpose-driven leadership, entrepreneurship, emerging markets, and social innovation at NYU. He also teaches at the London School of Economics, where he gained his PhD and master's. He served as inaugural deputy director at the LSE's Innovation Center and is the co-founder of Sandbox Network, a global community of young innovators and of Leaders on Purpose, an organization convening leading CEOs. He's the author of The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck, which was recently published and has had great reviews. Welcome, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. So, Christian, as you're aware, serendipity played a pivotal role in connecting us as I came across one of your talks on YouTube and just loved the concept. I then cheekily messaged you, messaged you on LinkedIn. You kindly replied, and here we are now. Absolutely. Serendipity in action, yeah. Exactly. But I also didn't realize that the word serendipity comes from serendip, an old name for Sri Lanka. And funnily enough, both my parents are Sri Lankan, and I was actually born there. Excellent. Well, you know, and you, you definitely have that spirit, right? You connected me with a couple of people as well. So it's been definitely in your lifeblood, no? <laughs> Wait, I think it's that whole six degrees of separation. And actually, that's why I love looking at LinkedIn. You realize that you're a lot closer to, to people than you, than you realize, don't you, Christian? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you don't mind, well, let's go back to the beginning. And I was reading your book, um, a copy I've, I've got just around here, but you mentioned in your book that you were quite rebellious when you were young and you had a near-death experience at, at, at 18, which started your interest in serendipity. Yeah, absolutely. And it was exactly that, that I was in high school. I was kicked out of high school at some point. I had to repeat a year. I was this rebellious teenager who was a nightmare to, to my parents probably. I have a lot of respect still for them, how they endured that period. And then I transferred this lifestyle to my driving style. I probably held the unofficial world record for how many dustbins you can knock on or knock off your way on your way to school. And then exactly one day I wasn't that lucky anymore. I crashed into four parked cars, all cars completely smashed, including my own. And I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and who, who was like, oh my God, he's still alive. So this idea that I was supposed to be dead. And, you know, I asked myself all these weird questions. 
who would have come to my funeral, who would have actually cared, was it all worth it? And, you know, at that point, I had to say, well, it wasn't that uh, meaningful so far that I've done or uh, how I lived my life. And so I started reading this wonderful book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yes. And that book was all about essentially how do we find meaning in crisis? I reread it recently, so I had COVID earlier in the year, and it was like a wonderful reminder that kind of we can find meaning in any kind of tough situation. But that kind of really put me on that track of trying to figure out what does feel meaningful to me. And I realized what I really enjoy doing is connecting people, connecting ideas, seeing how kind of meaningful change can be initiated. And so I started out as community builder, company builder, and then researcher. And, you know, on that journey, what I found fascinating is that the most joyful, purpose-driven, successful people seem to have in common that they cultivate serendipity. They see something the unexpected and then turn it into positive outcomes. And so that really is where the fascination came about. And I believe this this experience with, with the accident, that really got you diving into, deep diving into your academics. And I think you said that you applied to 40 universities, but you only got four offers. So what I, what, what I, the, the, the whole point of this podcast is to try and show people um, and our listeners different uh, routes to success. And I think you're the embodiment of that, that you weren't this person who had this very linear path to success. You had these scrapes uh, and you did these different things, but you managed to come out to a fantastic uh, place on the other side. So do you want to just talk a little bit about your, you know, once you had had the accident and then you started applying to university, I think that was quite a tough situation for you. Is that right, Christian? Absolutely. I mean, I still remember the last year of high school when I realized, you know, it dawned on me that with my kind of grades and my kind of uh, CV until then, I probably wouldn't have a lot of opportunities at, at really good universities. And I started kind of sending out as many CVs or as many applications as I could. Back in the days, you know, it was still kind of, you had to do an envelope <laughs> per application. So you actually had to go to the <laughs> post office and post them. Um, and I remember kind of employing my mom and, and a couple of friends to kind of like help me with all this kind of like, you know, actually getting it to the post office and so on. But it was interesting because that last year of high school, I was very focused on how can I do additional XYZ learning exercises? How can I take additional responsibilities so that at least there's something that I can show? You know, when you write these kind of letters of what is it, cover letters and other things that, you know, it probably was very coincidental that the admissions officer or or read something like, oh my God, you know, um, this guy seems to do X or Z and, you know, they liked that, but it was very, I just incredible probably that they liked it because again, I mean, my grades didn't uh, give a lot. And and I remember, I mean, I was super excited when it actually worked out with with one and and I ended up in in Fort Wong, which had been, you know, a wonderful experience because it was that kind of program where, um, you were allowed to spend half of the the time abroad. And so I spent it in in Mexico and Moscow. And I found that fascinating because it was literally the kind of two extremes in in terms of culture. And so, and I think that, you know, leaned to my character of trying to see, okay, what is life all about and, and how can you experience different elements of life? But also I think that kind of journey into academia made me realize, oh, wow, that is a great opportunity space to then we started setting up different types of organizations and, 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 and different types of student societies and things just to kind of explore what can we do to, to really kind of have some kind of impact, even though we're early on in life. And I think that is probably also something for, for those listeners who are, um, you know, maybe in that stage of being at university or so. 
I felt that to be the wonderful, the most wonderful experimentation space in terms of trying out different things. You know, most things won't work out, but if a few do, that's pretty exciting. And, and I think the two interesting points that I picked up from that is, one, you actually only need one university to accept you. And then two, if you didn't have the scrapes, then in a way, maybe you wouldn't have forced yourself to try and stand out and be different from the crowd. And I totally hear you know, what, what you're saying there, because I remember when I was applying to jobs after university, I was really struggling, but I managed to get one. And, and luckily at Ernst & Young, and you know, the rest is history so to speak so you know so many people think they need loads of job offers but actually all you need is one and do a good job and i think you did your phd at the the lse the london school of economics absolutely and, and you know to exactly your point harsha that at every step right it, it always has been a numbers game right that like sending 40 applications undergrad sending xyz how many applications for the postgrad masters sending xyz like it, it's always been exactly this to say you only need one or two right but like yeah um at the end of the day the only like way to get to one or two is actually to send out a lot of, especially at the moment you know i have a lot of conversations with my advisees and so around like how do we essentially make sure that you know they they spread their or they cast their hooks wide you know not think there's only three organizations they should apply to and that's that no like literally cast them at wide because well, you know we've had that conversation a lot of times serendipitously then something beautiful in a completely different area that we didn't even think about comes up because we cast it on a bit a bit wider and, and so I think it's, it's really about to your point like that numbers game of really kind of reaching out as much as we can in our I mean it sounds like in your case as well but certainly in my case where I, I had to fight a bit harder because there was not that much that actually helped to to impress at that point. And, and you're right. I think it's a great way, you know, out of necessity, it forces you to to figure out what is my niche here that could still be convincing if, if the kind of basics are not necessarily at the level that others had. But, but, but sometimes I think the grind makes it interesting. That builds character. And you have these opportunities which wouldn't normally come up purely because you are doing the grind, isn't it? So yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely. Uh, so I think you, you, you obviously finished the, the PhD at the LSE. I, I think you taught there for a bit, but now you're at uh, NYU, New, New York University? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I'm, I'm teaching here at the, the Center for Global Affairs, which is all about how do we rethink how businesses work? How do we rethink about capitalism? You know, how, how could capitalism be more inclusive and, and so on? And then exactly I stay involved at, at the Marshall Center and the, at, at the LSE where we do a lot of work around social innovation and, and how to kind of develop meaningful organizations. Fantastic. So uh, moving on to the book, The Serendipity Mindset, obviously great title. Um, would you like to just give a brief overview of your book before we sort of dive more, more deeply into that? Yeah, I mean, it's really based on this premise that a lot of times we try to map everything out, right? We try to have a plan and that's the way how we, we function a lot of times in, as individuals, but also as, as companies or organizations. But then, you know, the unexpected happens. <laughs> things like COVID happen and then we're like, oh my God, we need to make the best out of it now. And so it's really about building that muscle for the unexpected that allows us to turn that into positive outcomes. And so, you know, the, the beautiful thing is like serendipity is all about that kind of smart active luck. So it's very different from the blind luck, you know, the blind luck of being born into a good family or something. We can't really influence that. I mean, at least not that I know of, but but that's kind of the blind luck. But then there's this smart active luck, which is all about seeing something the unexpected and then connecting the dots. And so, you know, imagine the quintessential situation you know if you have erratic hand movements like i do you spill coffee in a coffee shop i mean back in the days when they were still open you spill that coffee over someone else you sense there might be some kind of connection you sense there might be something there you don't know what it is and now you have two options right option number one is you just say i'm so sorry here's a napkin you walk outside and you're like oh my god i should have talked with this person what could have been right and <laughs> yeah, then the other option is, exactly and the other option is you say i'm so sorry i was in my head about xyz idea 
start a conversation and that might become your co-founder, your love partner, your XYZ, right? And so it's really these kind of moments where the unexpected happens, but then what we do with it, our response to that really shapes kind of our future. And so what, what, what's fascinating about serendipity is that we can make these accidents more meaningful, but also we can create more meaningful accidents. And that's kind of really the fascination there. No, that, that, I think that's a, that's a brilliant summary. I, actually, I, I had written down in my notes, developing a muscle to deal with the unexpected. So I think that's straight, straight from your book. But I, I think the, the nice thing you were talking about is that you can almost turn this into a process. So rather than waiting for luck to happen to you. And I think it's essentially recognizing the, tr- the trigger point, connecting the dots, and then having the tenacity to really go uh, and, and drive until you find that a bit of luck. Absolutely. And, and to your point, right, that's the beauty of it, that once we don't see it as a singular event, so, you know, synchronicity, for example, is all about a meaningful coincidental event, right? But it's, there's not much we do about it versus like serendipity as the process of that kind of trigger that happens, but then also that we have to do something with, we have to connect the dots and the tenacity. The beauty of this three-step process is every step we can influence. We can seed more potential triggers. We can make more with those triggers. We can connect the dots differently, but also we can develop our grit, our tenacity and so on to really turn these moments into something that's, that's sustainable. You need to have resilience because, yeah, as we were talking about before, you just really have to keep being persistent, obviously not in an unpleasant sort of way, but I think if you have that real um, grit and determination then and, and try and see these things through, then hopefully at the end, at the end of the process, you will have that bit of luck which potentially can change your life exactly exactly and that's really something i mean i feel especially at the moment right when you have moments such as now where covid you know i think all of us feel kind of quite tense but there's a lot of you know moments of, of anxiety and so and i think especially in those, those moments kind of thinking about okay when in the past have I faced similar moments? How did I go about it? How can I go about it differently now and or similarly if I, if I did that well in the past? And so I'm actually a big fan of, of making a or having a serendipity journal where you write down what are the kind of moments, even though it's a tough time, where still these kind of things can happen. Is it the kind of conversations I have? Can I ask slightly different questions? Or is it, you know, that I take another street when I go on my morning run that where I could like, you know, see something in the windows differently, whatever it is, like like opportunities to essentially see that in every moment, every conversation, there should it could be something beautiful because then it gives us more of this kind of grit and resilience of believing it is worth to still be out there and, and do things versus feeling that, you know, let's just shut down for the next five years and then wake up once, once the world opens up again. And I think that it's that idea of possibilities. I think that's so important that you've got to feel that there is a chance that this something can turn around. But I think the point you mentioned about patterns, because I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of in your life, you, you sometimes see patterns emerging. And, and it's funny, I, I'm, I'm from a, a sort of sporting background and there you're very much trying to recognize patterns to almost predict what is going to happen. And I think in life, if you can look in the past and see the things that have worked for you, recognize those patterns, maybe recognize when you meet somebody, they, 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 they like you, they like you. If you recognize that, then it's almost like a trigger to try and work a bit harder to uh, form a relationship. Exactly. And, 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 and also the, the reverse then, were there moments where you felt, oh, I didn't, you know, like in the coffee shop example, yeah. oh, well, I should have acted on this. So those moments as well, right, where we feel, what were the moments where we didn't do what we could have done? And so it's, it's really kind of to your point, exactly those patterns of when did it go well, when didn't it go well? And then that is exactly what we can we can do a lot with. And it, it's quite funny you mentioned that because sometimes when you, um, you're you trying to build relationships and network, sometimes your mind is saying, well, it's that type of person that I think will help me. But actually, 
actually counterintuitively, it could be the guy who's sitting on, on his own in a, a drinks reception or nobody's really talking to him. It could actually be that's the person, but you, your mind has created this image. So I think sometimes you've got to just forget past history sometimes and then just go for it. But this idea of uh, reframing, I think that's a, a strong theme in your book, Kristin, where you're just, there was a potato washing machine, a washing machine and the farmers were washing potatoes. Would you like to sort of give a, a bit more insight into that? I, th- I found that fascinating. Absolutely. And, and, and maybe also to your previous point around, you know, I, I feel like that is really at the core of, of living a meaningful life to not see networking events or whatever events um, or interactions with people too transactional. Because if we see it as, oh, this person is the CEO of XYZ, so this is what I want from them. A, people feel it anyways, right? So they will not, but, but B, also it is very short-sighted, right? Because at the end right. of the day, the, the real potentiality comes from A, exactly this, like not knowing what could be out there, but also people, people move in the world, right? Like someone who's now the XYZ person at XYZ in three years will be somewhere completely different. And that's probably when the big thing will happen. So if we focus on building meaningful relationships versus transactional relationships, that's actually where the real magic happens in the mid run. And so um, to your point, like I feel that's really important, this idea of really kind of not looking at the direct utility of something, but actually, you know, this idea of potentiality. And, and that is actually then, you know, funny enough, where a lot of times unexpectedly you get your next client or you get your next thing because you're not pushing it, you're not pitching it. You're actually letting people come to you a little bit more about it. We can, we can definitely talk more about this as well but um to your question i'm I'm a huge fan of exactly this idea of how do we if something unexpected happens how do we look at it in a way that could really open up new possibilities and so in this case you know similar to how viagra evolved a lot of other things in this case it was something that was unexpected and potentially going wrong but actually they made it a huge opportunity so in this case there's this chinese company one of the largest white goods companies in the world so they produce washing machines refrigerators and so on you know like farmers told them hey uh, your washing machine is always breaking down. And, you know, so they asked, why is it breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in them and somehow it doesn't seem to work. And so what would we usually tell them? We would probably say, well, it's a washing machine for clothes. Don't wash your potatoes in it. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? Unexpected, but there's a lot of farmers in China who might have the same problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And so that's how, you know, coincidentally, the potato washing machine became a new product. The point here is with all these different types of inventions and innovations, up to 50%, by the way, they come about in this way that someone sees something in, in something that others would not see. And I think that that's really important, the whole idea of just reframing the whole situation rather than the, the people at uh, this Chinese company saying these guys are crazy, actually saying, well, there's there's an opportunity. Um, and, and just in terms of reframing, uh, have you looked into the, the neuroscience side of that? Because that's something I'm really interested in neuroscience. And I think that's quite a, a key concept of trying to look at a situation and rather than a glass that is half empty, it's half full. And I think that's so important in life, you know, rather than looking, say, the COVID situation now. Sure, we're stuck at home, but it means that I can have a call with you in, in New York and record this podcast, whereas before we'd have, we just wouldn't have the time. And I think that reframing element is quite interesting. Absolutely. And, and you know, to your point, that's the fascinating thing I feel where neuroscience, psychology and, and other areas are saying exactly the same thing, right? That yeah. at the end of the day, it is about looking at something from the perspective of, you know, what is the opportunity here rather than the, the, the thing that goes wrong or, you know, that's the whole idea around growth, growth mindset as well, right? This idea sure. of how do you essentially see every situation as something that could be 
improved or that could or you could improve in that situation. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting because a lot of my work is in extreme resource constrained environments, um, so especially in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. And there's this amazing organization, Reconstruct Living Lab. And, you know, it's former drug addicts, like people who had a really rough time. And I think there's a lot to learn from them for where we are currently, right? We're like in times of budget cuts and everything else, where when they go into a new community, they don't have a lot of resources. They go into impoverished communities and they have a low-cost education methodology that is all about, you know, 10 steps to use social media to build a business and these kind of kind of simple methodologies. And instead of going into a community and saying, what do you need or like what kind of resources, they say, what's already here and how can we make the best out of it? So it's all about bricolage, this kind of how do we make the best out of what's here? And, you know, then you look at an old garage at this, as a training center. You look at a former drug addict or former drug dealer as an amazing potential teacher because they have a lot of social capital. They have a lot of legitimacy and authority. They can probably pull a lot of people in. So if you get them as a teacher, you can you can turn a community around. And so the point here is that by reframing a situation away from resource constraints to what is already here and how do we make the best out of it, it's a huge shift we can do as well. And, and if you take it, what they do, for example, when you hand in a budget there, say you organize an event and you need 10 chairs, you know, you would usually just put a budget proposal at an organization, right? They say, okay, answer two questions. First question, do you really need the chairs or can people sit on the floor? Can they sit on a bench or something? And if you really need it, you know, is there a restaurant next door that could that could lend you because they are closed at that time? Whatever it is. The point is that if you go through these kind of simple questions, you completely reframe situations and you become so much more creative because you see solutions everywhere. Whereas it's just like, oh, I need this and this is the only way to get it. Chris, no, I, I totally hear you there. And I think in terms of the world of work, I think that's an important situation because especially now, there's so much uncertainty, people are so worried. But I suppose that even at this time, it's if you can sort of focus on what you can do, you know, control what you can control, it may be just the fact that you stick to a schedule, you try and you know, send out, if you're looking for work, you're continually networking and even things like uh, content creation. If you can write an article, do a podcast, do a blog, and actually just show, um, almost show, show what you're like uh, on the, uh, you know, on your LinkedIn page. Then that's actually quite a powerful thing. And it's just thinking smarter, isn't it? Absolutely, and and that's exactly you know, I'm a huge fan of of setting these kind of serendipity bombs almost right, where it's just kind of like you put something out there, and then at some point the bomb goes off. You don't know when it will go off, but by putting these kind of different things out there, at some point someone might go back to you and say, oh my god, like we wanted to look exactly into this or. Uh, one thing, for example, I've been doing a lot with my students who, you know, they had their careers fell through. They had their kind of, you know, they had their internships mapped out and then oh, yeah, totally. COVID, a lot of things got canceled, right? And one of the things we've been doing with them is to say, you know what? You talk with everyone now. You talk with every adjunct professor, with everyone on our LinkedIn. It's like reach out to people and just flag to them. Hey, I'm super excited about this. Have been super inspired by you. Just wanted to like X, Y, Z and things that put you on the radar of people. And then you do that 50 times. And it's not a pitch, right? It's very different from a pitch. Yeah. It's essentially just putting yourself on the radar. And then when you do that 50 times, one or two people go back and say, oh my God, such coincidence. We've been looking for someone to explore X, Y, Z. Like, why don't we have a coffee and explore something? The point is it's a numbers game again, where if we put like a lot of dots potentially out there, other people can connect it for us. And to your point, a wonderful way to do that is, of course, to write blog posts or to, to do podcasts or other things that in a way get people to come to you because you essentially create something that, that could be of value to them. But again, they look at it from their perspective rather than pitching it on them. Yeah. And I, and I think that whole idea of the second order co uh, connections, because sometimes it, those first order connections, they'll pr pretty much know the same information that you know. But if you can get 
their connections who you don't know, then I think that's quite a powerful process. And, and if they like you, even if there isn't a job there, they'll have you in mind for hopefully you know, an internship or, or something. And, and you just never know. And sometimes it's just getting that foot in the door um, and creating some goodwill. And also, I, I like the point you made, I think, in your book about seeding serendipity uh, triggers. And I think you mentioned a guy called Ollie Barrett in London. Yeah, he's a wonderful entrepreneur and he is extremely good at casting hooks. So this idea of how do you essentially put something out there where other people can then create a coincidence out of it. And so, um, you know, if you would ask him this dreaded question, what do you do, you know, which, which puts people into boxes, <laughs> he would say something like, uh, you know, I'm a education entrepreneur, recently explored the philosophy of science, but what I really enjoy doing is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I just started hosting piano matinees, you should come by. Or my God, such a coincidence, my sister is a professor of the philosophy of science, I, you should give a guest lecture, yeah. whatever it is. The point is, the more we feed these kind of different dots into conversations, things we're interested in, things we're excited about, the more than other people can essentially connect the dots for us. And so I think that's the beauty where, you know, I'm a big fan of small behavioral shifts. So rather than reinventing our whole life and thinking about how we can do life completely differently, it's a lot about these small things in terms of how do we answer differently to questions slightly where we see a little bit more interesting things. When someone asks, how, how are you doing? It could be things such as, oh yeah, no, really great. Like I just finished this book and I was thinking about this or whatever it is, just kind of like mixing it up a little bit to see a little bit potential dots where they could be like, oh my God, um, there could be something there. And the cool thing about this also, of course, is that then every conversation gets much more exciting as well, even the more routine conversations with colleagues. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because when I was reading your book, I, I saw that you liked The the Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And I, I remember reading that when I was a kid. And and it's funny how you, know, you, you realize that we have much more in common than, than, than we don't, but it's a question of digging under the surface. Uh, Robert Cialdini, the, the psychologist, he talks about finding commonalities. If you, if you find something in common on a non-work-related subject, then you just feel more comfortable with that person. And then what starts is just to talk about a book or a play hopefully you can move it on to a work situation. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's exactly, in a way, I mean, if you think about what makes people come together, it's some kind of common denominator, right? And if we enable finding that common denominator in a non-forced way, rather than kind of trying to push something on someone, that is, that is in a way what, what really creates it. No? And so I feel like that's why I'm a big fan also of, in terms of not oversharing, but really kind of like bringing in information that could help the other person. Because I think most people dread small talk, right? We, we all have to do it. But like, if we can make that more meaningful, actually, it is relieving for both sides also. Especially if it's not on work, because I think work, it just mm -hmm. seems like a hard sell. Where if it's, oh, I saw this great movie or I read this great book, then it just seems a more pleasurable interaction, doesn't it? Exactly. And especially if you then ask things, right, like what inspired you about it or whatever it is, you also learn about the motivations of people that then also help you, of course, to to see a pattern that could also apply them in the work class. And that's actually really interesting because I think when you're looking at, uh, say, a potential, um, somebody you want to work with, it, it's trying to understand what is the why, what, 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 what motivates them. You know, yep. it, it's not just about status or money or success, but what is, you know, what gets them up in the morning. And I think that's quite powerful. If you can really figure out why they show up and, and is there an authentic reason for that, you're much more likely to want to work with them or hire them or you know, do something together. 
Exactly, exactly. I, I think you mentioned in your book when a lot of times it's the fear of failure that I think stops us from progressing, you know, because you don't want to be exposed as an imposter. And I think you, you mentioned when you were on vacation with a good friend of yours, that's how the genesis for the book happened when you were explaining the book to your friend and her family. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's there's really two themes, I guess, to that in terms of the first theme is about that for a very long time, I wanted to write a book initially about something different, about the impact organizations or the question of how do we develop organizations that do, do well and good at the same time, which my, a lot of my research is about that. And one of the things that helped me back was really this kind of inner imposter coming out from time to time saying, oh, are you ready for it? Have you done enough research? Have you done X, Y, Z? And so it was this kind of constant voice that said, well, do you first also, you know, it was still the process where one of the companies I was involved in, we had a bit of a kind of a tense situation. So I first wanted to resolve that as well. And so I didn't feel ready in the sense of that. So that helped me back a little bit. And then at the same time, exactly. So I went on holidays at some point um, when I felt more and more ready for, for actually getting on with it. And I went on, on a holiday with, with good friends of mine and I pitched them the book idea. And, and they were like, yeah, that sounds interesting. Do you have other ideas as well? And so literally kind of just like, okay. They were being polite. <laughs> exactly. Very like, I've, I've learned to appreciate about the Brits, right? Like very. <laughs> well, are, are they English, Christian? Were they English? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, very English, exactly. So, uh, wonderfully what, English. Yeah. What, what, what would Germans have done? Would they have been more direct or less direct? I mean, I can only speak, you know, about the Germans I know, but they would probably have said, look at what's like, you know, forget about it. But, but, um, but, but, but then essentially there was, you know, and they were like, do you have other ideas as well? And, and so I was like, oh my God, like the thing that really drives my life, the, the thing that is my life philosophy and the daily practice is, is serendipity. And so I remember that night I spent essentially going through all my research where serendipity used to pop up a lot, going through my life, like as community builder, where serendipity, you know, we, we did a community called Tempo. Box, um, sandbox network where uh, the idea of accelerating serendipity was always at the core and so you know it, it beautifully came together that all these different experiences essentially had the theme of serendipity in common and so it, it kind of um, and that really launched them the, the, the kind of book writing process focused on, on serendipity which in itself was serendipity then yeah. yeah and it's interesting I think sometimes it's just the action of you're thinking about it you're planning you just have to go for it and, and see how it turns out um, I mean say with this podcast that I'm, I'm starting I, I had no clue about podcasting until literally three months ago and you know it's just by doing it with a friend and then finding you know top quality guests like you um, then it all it all just comes together but I think sometimes you just have to say look just do it and see where the chips fall and not overthink things we've talked about res resilience and I think we've, we've said that it's, it's so important to just keep going well and especially I mean one thing that I've found fascinating about serendipity when you look closer at it um, is the incubation time of it a lot of times what we now would look at as serendipity might have started as bad luck, right? And and so, I mean, you know, we see that a lot during COVID times at the moment where people completely redefine some of the things they're doing and, you know, breweries turn into hand sanitizer companies, you know, the Oxford vaccine, like the dosage, like what's kind of serendipitously discovered, all these kind of things. Like, of course, out of yeah. necessity, a lot of these things happen at the moment. But what's really, I guess, important and, and something I've seen in my own life is that a lot of times a crisis that seems really, really bad luck um, then becomes serendipity. So to give you an example, I remember when I went to my publisher with the first draft, you know, they were like, well, like, we really love this, but we need more love stories. And I was like, well, I'm not sure if I, as the then single, like 35-year-old <laughs> guy, 
am the right person to write about love. Like, what do I know about love? <laughs> they were like, no, 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 but like, like we need some love stories. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try to find some. So right after that, I had a meeting scheduled with uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine who's a close friend of mine now, um, you know, just to catch up. And so I was like, hey, do you know of any cool love stories? I need love stories here. <laughs> and she was like, well, our story. I was like, what do you mean our story? We're not together anymore. Where's the success here? Like, you know, and, and she was like, look, like we serendipitously met in the Starbucks, right? We kind of, it started out like watching each other's laptops and then starting a conversation. And then, you know, it kind of like went on. She was in that period where she just arrived in London from Sweden and, and kind of, you know, was exploring her options. And, and so at that point, kind of, I think for both of us, it was wonderfully like an emotional support system that we gave each other, but also we introduced each other to the people who end, like ended up kind of putting us on our professional trajectories and personal trajectories. And so it was this kind of moment where, you know, in my view, it was kind of bad luck in a way, or, or, or it was bad that we broke up at some point because it didn't work as a relationship. But in her view, which I now share as well after that conversation was to say, hey, no, like it was still a success in the sense of it was such an important part of our life. And, and even if it, it, even if we're not together anymore, we formed such an important part of it. And so um, I guess as an example of like how a lot of times like serendipity at the beginning, it, it seemed great, right? Serendipitously, we met, so serendipity wonderful. Breakup then seemed not so great, but then long run again, great. And so it's really to your point, right? This idea that the question of luck, bad luck, good luck, and everything else, a lot of times depends on when we stop the story. And if we stop the story too early, then it ends up to be bad luck. But if we continue going from all the research, from all the interviews, from all the kind of my own life, one thing I've seen is that the people who are the most inspiring out there, they are constantly kind of, they keep on going. And then, you know, a lot of things came out of really tough situations for them. And, and that was actually then in the long run, probably one of the best things that could have happened. I mean, I, I consider the near-death experience back then, right? It was really bad in the moment and it probably left a couple of scars, it, it, like like emotionally and, 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 and in other ways. But like it kind of, if I wouldn't have found that way at that point, I probably wouldn't have done a lot of things I, I did now. And so it's kind of, I've seen that with other people also who had near-death experiences or who faced death that in a way, it makes you re-evaluate life and that actually turns out to be a lot of times a really good thing. And, and I think that's a great point, Chris. And I think it's it's the way you react to these situations, which I think is so crucial because say there's one job you really want and you've got through to the last round of the interviews, but you don't get it. And that can be really crushing. But if you just say, okay, what's happened has happened and you move on. And you know, I'm, I'm sure you you must have interviewed with loads of different people. But you know, rather than thinking about the uh, interviews that went badly, you just think, look, keep being positive, wait for the next one. Sometimes you may, may need to get 20 rejections for that or 50 rejections or, or whatever it is to get that one opportunity but and it's i think like like kierkegaard says it, you don't really understand you know you, you have to live life forwards but you don't it can only be understood backwards that that sort of thing isn't it that you always have to it only makes sense when you're looking back and you're connecting the dots and i think you just have to be open-minded and think look hopefully this is as long as i have a good attitude i'm, I'm doing my best things will work out in you know some way, way shape or form and that's exactly, you know, in terms of if you think about it, what happened, I mean, it definitely happened to me a lot, right? That kind of idea of, of rejection and, you know, how you, you need to get going. And in the moment, rejection feels like, oh my God, I had everything mapped out and now it all comes <laughs> crashing down, right? Yeah, you're like, oh my God, you. my life is over, right? Um, and, you know, it's interesting because that's the same with companies, right? I mean, I remember when... Uh, we had with one of the companies I was involved in, we developed an amazing or, or a really cool community of, of young people who make ideas happen. And, you know, initially we wanted to organize this huge conference, you know, like have everyone come to like one location. And then the financial crisis hit like 2008-ish. Yeah. And, you know, kind of all the sponsors said, no, 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 no way we can't get in. 
and we were like, oh my God, like we probably will, you know, go bankrupt. We probably, we can't afford any of this. Like we probably have to stop this. And then actually it forced us to just rethink the model and to say, hey, instead of like a top-down big conference thing, why don't we do like a more kind of like hub-focused model first where we kind of, you know, do local dinners in different cities and then after and after build the community. And then at some point in a few years, we kind of do that big uh, big conference. And, and that actually is, I believe, why the community is still so very active after like 12 years now, because in a way it forced us to really think about organic, deep relationships that people can build locally first before they then all met versus like just meeting and then dispersing again. And so long story short, I think a lot of these things, again, like it was almost like a rejection of all the sponsors of all these different people who said, no, this won't work now. And then it was about, okay, what, what can we still do with that? And I think the same when you think about, you know, these moments of rejection in like for an internship or for, for a job, I think it comes back to two things, right? First, just because it rejected now doesn't mean that in, in five years, like there's still a way in. But more importantly, it always reminded me of this. One of my mentors always used to say, Christian, people like you always think there's only one way to Rome. And you have this kind of fixation on what Rome is, right? Like I want to be XYZ consultant or XYZ whatever. Um, and McKinsey and BCG and Bain are the only three that I could ever do because that is kind of like what I got trained to believe are the kind of like, you know, golden uh, things to, to focus on. But, but then, you know, like in a way, A, maybe there's a lot of other ways to Rome, right? Whatever Rome is, whatever the North Star is. But also, do you really know if you really want to go to Rome? Or is that just something that, that like, you know, peer pressure and everything else put in your mind and your head? And so I think one of the beautiful things that rejection also teaches us is a of course we feel how much we wanted something but also we a lot of times might actually be realizing that there's a lot of other things out there that we didn't even have on the radar and i think to your point you know that's where i know no one i literally know no one who kept going and really being motivated who would ever say i it was like such a bad thing for my life that i was rejected or xyz like life has a way of unfolding if 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 we keep going but again and I'm saying the Shasha with the caveat, right? That I think, A, we can never blame people for bad luck. I mean, we've all had bad luck in our lives, right? Where it's yeah. just, you can't influence, right? Getting cancer and other things. Yeah. And second, I think this idea that we have very different starting positions, right? So someone who, you know, graduates from LC or NYU and like, you know, goes on to have a, a life, there's more options. There's more kind of, so the serendipity base level is so much higher versus, you know, someone in Kenya uh, who, who gets into the world, like the base level is very much lower. So also the rejection might have many more implications for their life. And so I think it, it also depends a lot on the context. But I've seen across contexts that a lot of times, you know, the people who, who have a mindset that kind of helps them go through rejection actually seem to be the ones that, you know, make, make a lot of things happen. Uh, but of course, we need to work at the same time on these kind of structural constraints and, and, and really kind of helping other people develop the same opportunity spaces that they can make, make things happen. I, I totally agree with you just in terms of the mindset. And you can be a lot happier with a lot less. So maybe the NYU guy, he has all the opportunities, but... Um, the way he's looking at the world, it takes so much to make him happy. And it maybe he's not even sure what it is that he's looking for. And I suppose now, Chris, and just in terms of looking at one's career, I know we've touched on a few things um, yeah, in terms of the, the serendipity triggers and the bombs. Are there any other sort of practical tips um, which you could share with our listeners just in terms of how they could maybe get a bit more luck in the, in their lives? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a, a big fan of, of, of the serendipity journal um, because one thing it fo- forces us to do is to really think about what is it that I want to develop a sense of direction for? Like, is it a deeper curiosity, an interest, a principle, a purpose? And then really kind of writing down, okay, if, if my purpose for the next years is that I want to 
bring XYZ people into the financial system or something like that, then how can I, in the next conversations I have, how can I bring in a couple of things that I could see or cast a couple of, of the things we talked about so that other people can then actually, you know, coincidentally be part of that journey. Or, you know, we talked about mapping really a little bit or thinking, reflecting on when are the moments I felt like, quote unquote, missed something, right? We miss serendipity all the time. So what was it about that? And really working on what is it that helped me back, right? So in my case, for example, I just worked a lot on the question of, I felt that I always, or a lot of times saw serendipity, like, or I saw the potential for serendipity, but then maybe I held myself back because I was like, well, you know, maybe I'm not ready for X, Y, Z. And so really working on that question of, you know, self-worth, the question of um, overcoming imposter syndrome and so on. So, and so I feel like there's a lot of tactical things we can do. And that's like a lot of the, the work that we've been doing and, and the content is around like the tactical kind of exercises we can do and so on, um, like the hook strategy and so. But I feel like the deeper work behind that is actually really to say, what is it that holds me back? What are my biases, my self-limiting beliefs, you know, sure. things that really kind of hold us back. And I, I, I remember I had this, a wonderful gentleman in London. I asked him, so how often do you do you have serendipity? And, uh, you know, he, he said, before I was 25, never. And after I was 25, all the time. And so I asked, well, why, what changed? And he said, well, you know, so he used to work as a waiter and he, um, people would always offer him opportunities. They would always say, my God, you have amazing energy. You have, like, you're a great guy. Like, I want to put you in touch with XYZ person so that you can discuss XYZ. And he would always be like, no, 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 because he didn't feel worthy for it. He didn't feel, you know, he grew up in an environment where people tell him people like us are not supposed to XYZ. And so that kind of like, apart from the structural constraints that he anyways, you know, faced, he also had that kind of self-limiting belief on top of it. And so kind of like then he went on this journey where he surrounded himself with people who, you know, believed in him and, and really kind of helped him develop that kind of self-confidence. You know, then he started acting on it. And that's when serendipity started to happen. I think that kind of shift, right? I mean, this is, of course, like a very kind of quote-unquote extreme. I think a lot of us, we probably see those moments where we could see an opportunity, but we don't act on it because we, we, we feel there's something holding us back. And I think working on that um, and overcoming this uh, can be can be extremely, extremely useful. I think that's really interesting, Christine, with that whole sort of negative self-talk, limiting beliefs, just not giving yourself a ch- almost permission to you know, live your best mm-hmm. life. Yeah, I mean, say somebody invites you onto yep. a like a, a podcast and you're thinking, oh, do I really want to go out and expose myself to the world? I mean, that's one view, but the other view is, oh yeah, it could be that my potential employer is watching that podcast. So I think it's just flipping that thing around. And and I think there was one other thing you mentioned, um, I think when we talked before about taking risk. And I think if you take sort of um, managed risk, I think that's quite helpful in terms of trying to build, build relationships, build your career. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think also to your earlier point, that question of how do we overcome that fear of rejection, fear of whatever it is, I feel like a lot of times what I found extremely useful is to reframe away from, oh my God, if XYZ rejects me or if I make a mistake on XYZ podcast or whatever it is, to saying, what is, when do I feel the most regret? Would I feel the most regret about that mistake or would I feel more regret of not having tried, of not having, of not having gone for an opportunity? And I've realized in my life, the things I regret the most is not having done something rather than having done it wrong or having done it in certain ways. And I think reframing situations to, you know, in that coffee shop example, right? It For three days, it might be on your mind that you didn't talk with that person versus the rejection. It would hurt briefly, but you would probably be like, yeah, whatever. Like, that, yeah, exactly. You know, and so I think like reframing that is, is really the kind of the, the point. Um, 
to your second point, I have to admit that I think I, I'll blame it on COVID that I that my memory doesn't function that well anymore. But you had the, the second point you mentioned was or the second question was around um, just about taking risks. I think you know, yeah, you know, strategic risks, just almost stepping mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. your comfort zone. Because I think that that's mm-hmm. when sometimes the real magic happens that you speak to somebody who you don't really know that well, or somebody says you know the usual thing. Oh, you 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 guys will probably get on well, but then your mind is saying, oh no, I don't really want to connect. And I think just yeah. stepping outside. And especially, I think, if you're trying to build your career, I think taking risks is is quite important to some extent. Absolutely. And I feel like, I, I you know, what you mentioned, I feel to me is the core, that it, it's about calculated risk, right? It's, it's kind of this thing where excessive risk taking, we sometimes admire people who seem amazing because they took some risk. Yeah, but you know what? It could have, life could have ended ended up very different for them if, if there wouldn't have been explicit elements. But but in, in, on the other hand, like there's kind of the calculated risk takers that, that are the ones that really succeed and and that's, you know, how similarly companies do it, right? In a way that you think about it almost like a portfolio where you say, okay, like 80% of the things I'm doing, like I'm trying to, you know, think about it. I try to plan them. I try to be X, Y, Z. And then there's this kind of like, there's this, this space here where I take a bit more risk and where I put myself a bit more out. And, and that kind of outside the comfort zone, A, emotionally, but also B, then, you know, where you try different projects, maybe if you have an hour in the evening, like maybe just starting writing a couple of blog posts, right, about something that we're also interested in, whatever it is, but that's starting it, right? The initial starting is, is of course, the biggest step. But once we start it, that actually adds so much richness to our life. And I'm a big fan, actually, of, um, so there's a uh, the founder of Serendipity, which is kind of a wonderful they they do a couple of of things around serendipity, and one of the things they uh, she's been experiment uh, experimenting with is that whole question of how do you build small experiments into your life. So for example, she makes ninety day experiments where she says for the next ninety days I will take a little bit of time to experiment X Y Z. Similar to how you know if you would go traveling you would explore the world from a different perspective, right? But in a COVID world you can't do that. So how do you replicate that kind of experience of just putting yourself into a new world by you know learning some new skill, but in a way that really pushes you a little bit towards combining that with your real passions, because it's just like you know as a side niche thing that never will have any relevance for your life, right? I feel like a lot of people take knitting classes or things, and that's wonderful, um, but I, I I don't necessarily see how that a lot of times might then be integrated into their life in the long run versus if it's really something that you integrate. Um, but of course, knitting classes are great as well. So it's kind of the point being that I think you it depends on what you're looking for. But I think a lot of times if we take small experiments, it can be a great way to, to, to actually then also discover the next thing for us. Yeah, I think that's a great point uh, to to end the conversation. Uh, but just for our listeners, if they want to get in touch with you, um, what's the best way? Because apart from obviously reading your book, I would definitely recommend it, The Serendipity Mindset. Is that, how, how can they reach out to you? You're on LinkedIn or Twitter or? Yeah. So, uh, you know, in the spirit of connecting dots, very happy um, for you to, to reach out. It's on Twitter. It's Chris Serendip and on LinkedIn, it's Christian Bush and the homepage is serendipitymindset.com. That's fantastic. And I'll make sure that those, uh, those links and things are left in the, um, the show notes, Christian. But I, I really do appreciate, uh, you taking the time to, to catch up today, Christian. And I'm glad to see you. You're looking very well. Um, so obviously the ra- ravages of COVID have, have passed. Are you feeling, feeling good? Feeling better? It's just fascinating. You know, I feel like there's certainly some things still, you know, if you think about things like lung functions and stuff that are not yet fully back, but I feel, yeah, I'm just very fortunate that it went uh, in, in a good direction. And Excellent. Well, very, very, very Enjoy. glad to hear it. And and thanks so Thank much you. again, Christian, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Asha. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. 
That was such an enjoyable interview with Christian. I hope that you enjoyed learning more about his journey and the process of trying to create more luck in your own life. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and do look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.